0: Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and I'm a master's student in philosophy at the University of Houston. You're listening to a Reading Group episode of the show, which means that in this episode, I discuss the paper Semicompatibilism and Its Rivals by John Martin Fisher with three non-philosopher friends, Adam, Giffen, and Brian, because philosophy shouldn't just be for philosophers. And so in this episode, we discuss uh, a wonderful paper Uh, from 2012 by John Martin Fisher, who I have interviewed on the podcast. Uh, If you haven't listened to that episode, I would actually recommend listening to that one first before this one. Um, This conversation was recorded just after I spoke with John um, for the first time, uh, interviewing him for the the podcast. And so this is kind of a follow up on that. Um, We discuss uh, Fisher's reasons responsiveness, which breaks down into several components which we go into and discuss at length. and I think that this paper was was uh, a really good introduction to reasons-responsive compatibilism. And the second part of the conversation is also a juxtaposition and a comparison between reasons-responsiveness and Frankfurt's second-order desire account. And I really liked that aspect of the conversation and the paper as well, because obviously Adam and I were very fond of um, Frankfurt's way of viewing things. So... Uh, with that introduction, I hope that you find this episode enjoyable as well. I know I loved recording it and I loved re-listening to it. So, with that, uh, here is our discussion. Well, let's uh, let's get into it then. So we're uh we're doing another paper in in the moral responsibility series uh this one is by john martin fisher called semi-compatibilism and its rivals um and so yeah by the time this episode airs the so i did so i interviewed john martin like i told both of you this but i interviewed john martin fisher on the podcast about this paper but I mean, the scope of that conversation kind of eclipsed the scope of this paper in some ways, but that, that interview is available and it will have been, uh, in, in real life. I recorded that about a week and a half ago, but by the time this airs, it should have posted several months ago. Um, so if listeners want to, they can listen to that first or after this or, or either. Um, but so, yeah, so this was, and I actually asked, um, I actually asked, uh, John Fisher this I, I asked him if this because this is a very cool kind of like recap, almost of his view or like a summary, and he defends it against you know, some of its more salient rivals. Um, he actually didn't remember if he was invited by the Journal of Ethics to do this or not. But there were some remarks that he gave in the beginning, um, that, that kind of made it sound like it was. And if so, it's like a very cool idea. Like I, I, I like that from the Journal of Ethics.
1: I also liked from his conversation with you that, you know, he did specify that he wrote this, uh, his intention was that it would be a standalone. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which, which I think it it walks that border very nicely between being a standalone, but very clearly kind of directing you to, Oh, you're interested in this part of my argument. Here's a paper in the footnotes that I wrote, you know, to, to go into that. And like I was showing you guys his CV. I mean, he's got to be one of the most prolific philosophers I've ever seen. Um, on on moral responsibility but just on you know many things generally so so he's so okay 30,000 foot view is a way to introduce the paper and his views well first of all I should say I this this is going to be like this is going to be very much an exploration in this in this paper because this is the first in the series of a of a compatibilist style that is a reasons responsive type and I understand both from speaking with John Martin Fisher and from listening to some interviews with other philosophers, there are multiple variants, of course, of reasons, responsiveness and different kind of varieties of that. So so he's, he's going to come out of the wash as what he calls a semi-compatibilist. So he's going to say that moral responsibility is compatible with a certain type of freedom or, or it survives kind of a certain type of intrusion from determinism. And... He also is is kind of clear that he is not exactly interested in whether free will, at least in this paper with respect to this view, whether free will is compatible with determinism, but rather moral responsibility is compatible with free will or determinism. So that's kind of the the very, very general framework of this paper. Um, And he says, so... So, yeah, I guess we'll I guess we'll just kind of move through the paper systematically, um, or at least in, in kind of somewhat a straightforward order. Um, I mean, he says, you know, I, I talked about this with with him in the interview, but I mean, he he takes it as a, um, you know, like a sort of benefit or strong point of his view that he has. It has this sort of, you know, he calls it resiliency. Like he, you know, he says um, that f- the famous line that our status as genuine agents should not hang on a thread so it shouldn't depend on if if you know determinism is true with a probability of 0.99 or 1.0 um and so he's so i think that he's kind of discussing all of this as you know being an agent in light of what we would need to be morally responsible not being an agent in light of what we would need to have libertarian free will or be sort of contra causal or create ourselves Uh, and, and to be honest, like I, that's something that my views have actually shifted on during like the course of this series is I actually do think that that is way more the important kind of area of this discussion. You know what I mean? Like what, what do we actually need for moral responsibility? Not necessarily to have free will. Um,
1: yeah. And also like, I kind of piggybacking on that a little bit. Um, I think my views have changed significantly in a similar way where, Like discussing, you know, whether we have any sort of ultimate moral responsibility or any sort of real sense of free will, that that's interesting. But at the same time, once you've already kind of gotten past that question, Mm. you know, and have decided, you know, maybe there's no ultimate sense of moral responsibility. Is there any semblance of moral responsibility Mm. that we can kind of like grasp onto or conceptualize? Mm.
0: We and, can preserve, yeah.
1: Exactly. Is there yeah. some sense? And I I and that's kind of some of the fun aspect of you know compatibilism. So.
0: On that note, so I remember Adam, you and I were talking about this before I actually interviewed uh Fisher about this, and because he has some remarks in the first section of his paper, um, page one nineteen, I believe, are some of the remarks. Um, maybe, maybe even into 120. Uh he he has what sounds like really kind of ambitious claims in his paper. So he says, you know, he so he says, quote, I chart out different ways of articulating our inchoic concept of moral responsibility, but I do not argue that one rather than others is the correct specification. I am not even sure that there is one unique specification. In any case, I contend that my account of the conditions in which moral responsibility obtains is compatible with any of the plausible attempts to specify the concept. So at first I was like, When I first read that, I was like, wow, that's like a very, very accepting of any interpretation kind of claim, right? Like, wow, you're you're kind of tying yourself to a lot of wagons there. That was my initial reading of it. But um, in, in in the talk, he actually elaborated on that in a way that I thought was super, super interesting. So what he is saying by that, because he, you know, he says, this view that he lays out a reasons responsive compatibilist is a view that is possible to apply to any definition of moral responsibility you want to apply it to yes. so if we're yeah so if we're talking about reactive attitudes you can apply it to that if we're talking about desert uh, practices you know retribution you can apply it to that if we're talking about even consequentialist considerations for punishment you can apply it to that so at first I, cause at first, like I, I, my initial reaction was to really disagree with that. Like, wow, there's no, I think there's like super important differences. And he agrees with that. What he means by this is that this framing can be applied to different concepts of responsibility, which is a very I, cool point.
1: It, I, I totally agree. And it's, it's almost like, like the concepts, the word <clears throat> concept is almost like asking in a broad sense, you know, what, Is responsibility like what even is this Mm. rather than conception, which is where it obtains
0: exactly? So, you know, like, and like, and
1: and so that's you know, that's kind of like where he tries to target and where most people we've read have put their energies. I mean, Strawson, you know, Mm -hmm. standing and stuff like that, but you know, the conception is more of like where does it obtain, where is you know, this framework. When do we describe someone as morally responsible? When do we exclude someone? So that's option mm. in that sense.
0: Which so- which for me and the projects that I'm most interested in, that distinction is invaluable to me. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's it's
0: it's invaluable because yeah. it allows you to have so much power. But so much specificity at the same time. So you can, you can use, and, and I didn't, and I didn't kind of get this distinction when we were talking about Frankfurt's second order desires, or what is also called in the literature a mesh case of moral responsibility, because that is the very much in the same way, not about the concept of moral responsibility, but about a conceptual framework for responsibility. And, yes. And so so this so this, regardless of what you yes, of what exactly. you think
1: more responsibility is where does it obtain? Yes. You know, so I I totally agree extremely mm-hmm. extremely interesting.
0: So which for my larger project is kind of like you know I, I'm like obviously I don't have like a set view about this but with all of these kind of evaluations of character that I've been talking about I, I, these are so so cool and so important because that distinction in the way you can view it allows you to both hone in on specific concepts of moral responsibility and then apply them in different frameworks uh, of the application of that concept. Exactly. Which, which is, yeah, is yeah, so yeah, cool. Yeah. Like, so
1: cool. I, that, like, I know. I know. I, that point's worth the paper alone. I, I totally conflated those two. I, I, yeah, of course. This paper it's so easy where, to do that. Sure. It's sure, so you know. easy to do that. Like, what is it versus when is it applied?
2: it's
0: so easy to do that yeah yeah yeah. no it's it's perfect it's perfect actually um that was one thing that you know even though that's that's obviously you you can you can get that distinction from the previous episode i thought it was worth going over again Mm -hmm. um okay so let's get in so let's so let's just hop right into the the control conditions for moral responsibility because i think this is very this is very interesting so this is going to be section 1.2 1.2 oh and i should say I'll, I'll post the pdf um for this 1.2 okay <clears throat> so let me I'll, I'll give two quotes from him actually this is this is the very beginning of 1.2 he says i accept the traditional view that moral responsibility involves a freedom or control component and an epistemic component But whereas I I agree that moral responsibility requires control, I distinguish two kinds of control, guidance and regulative control. Skipping a few lines. One kind of control involves access to alternative alternative possibilities, freedom to do otherwise. I call this regulative control. The other kind of control does not require such access. It is a distinctive kind of control that does not involve freedom to choose or do otherwise. I call this guidance control. My claim is that guidance control is the freedom relevant or control component of moral responsibility. Thus, an agent can legitimately be held morally responsible for his behavior even though he lacks regulative control. Okay, so this is where his semi compatibilism kind of gets its footing, right? So, okay, so should we? So let's okay, so let's introduce let's let's explain the two types of control with his car example. So I'm not going to quote from this. So correct me if I go astray anywhere. He illustrates these two different types of control. And this is where he really, uh, this is where he kind of um, takes Frankfurt's PAP paper which we went over previously, and he really kind of runs with it and incorporates it into his own thesis in a way that is actually quite different from the way Frankfurt incorporates it into his, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so just to reiterate, regulative control is the kind of control where you have the freedom to do otherwise. That is that alternative possibilities. Now, guidance control is not that type of freedom and he hasn't defined it yet but guidance control in his view is the is the freedom relevant or control component that is germane to responsibility right so okay so he lays it out with two he basically just makes his own version of a frankfurt case right so he's <clears throat> so imagine you're driving in a car so let's let's illustrate the regulative control so imagine you're driving in a car and All of the kind of conditions of determinism have conspired such that at a certain given intersection, you're going to make a right turn, right? It's just all of the causes in the universe and their concatenations have conspired such that you're going to make that right turn no matter what you couldn't have done otherwise, right? And it doesn't matter really about the the details of your constitution or how the car works or where the road's going or anything, right? All of those things come out in the wash. You're just going to, you have no freedom to do otherwise. So that's one sense. And, and you do make a right turn. So you had no freedom to do otherwise, right? Now, he distinguishes that from <laughs> basically his own version of jones four case i think right uh yeah um where now this is to illustrate what he calls guidance control now this is a scenario where you're in a car and you're approaching this uh, intersection and you can make a, a right hand turn or you can make a left hand turn and you want to make a right hand turn and in fact you do make a right hand turn but unbeknownst to you It the details of the car were such that if you would have tried to make a left hand turn, the car would have prevented you from doing so, you know, it could have some sort of onboard navigation system or something. And there's like a road closure on the left. You're not aware of this, obviously, but but the car's navigation system knows. And so if you had tried to make a left hand turn, uh, it would have prevented you from doing so. So in both cases, you end up making a right hand turn now. As I understand him, the element of 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 guidance control there, excuse me, is that your actions are sort of, for lack of a better term, under your guidance, right? They're, that's the way in which you're controlling them. You want to make a a, a right hand turn, and you do make a right hand turn. Um, so, let me try to find a let me try to find a, a quotation. That illustrates this a little bit more. Um, I think that there was something on. The, on active reading. Hmm. Give me a second. Determinism's relevance. So, the way I'm understanding him, maybe, maybe actually, this is a question. This this might actually be a, a, an interesting question. The way I'm understanding him is that guidance control. Well, okay, so, so let me, so on page uh, 123, top of the second paragraph, just just to kind of let his language speak for a second, he says, so my preliminary conclusion is that if causal determinism rules out moral responsibility, this is not in virtue of its eliminating regulative control, if it does indeed eliminate regulative control. So he's, he's so I take him as saying, look, you know, regulative control is the sense of could have done otherwise, and determinism does let's just, does just assume, you know, determinism is true and determinism does completely vitiate that sense of could have done otherwise. That's right. But Fisher is going to say then that, yes, that's totally true, but there's this sort of other sense of control, that guidance control, whether you wanted to turn right and whether you sort of, I don't, he wouldn't use this language, but whether you sort of pragmatically could turn right. Right. He's almost dropping the level of analysis down a little bit. What are you saying with that exactly? Sorry. So I'm saying, <clears throat> uh, so I, I take it
1: to mean that like,
0: yeah, I, that that was probably a poor because Because it,
1: cause it, cause for me, it's just like, you know, your intentions guiding your actions. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> in one case, they, in the second case, you intend to turn the car right and you do Mm -hmm. but you couldn't have turned left but there's no difference ultimately to you Mm. that you couldn't have turned left because in fact you did turn right and your intentions um pretty much aligned with
0: they're 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 able to be sort of they're able to be translated into action. Yes. 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 Okay. Yeah. I, that That's a better way of putting it than what I said. Yeah. Your intentions are able to be translated into actions in that sense. Yes. So, and so, and so, well, actually, okay. So maybe this is, so I think that, I think that guidance control could be, so maybe this is kind of part of my hesitation. I think that guidance control could actually be conceptualized in many different ways. And the way he conceptualizes it, is as a reasons responsive type of guidance control, right?
1: Yeah, and, and I think also he just wants you to recognize the difference in the scenarios. Like the difference is not the fact that, or it, it's not just that he couldn't have done otherwise in both examples. Like there's a significant difference mm-hmm. in intending to turn left but turning right, mm-hmm. than intending to turn right and turning right. Yes. Like there's a big difference in the sense that okay, Mm. the outcome's the same either way, but intending to turn right, turn right in turning right, um, okay, well now this, you know, this has become actionable and it aligns with your intentions. Yes. Versus not aligning with your intentions, but either way it ends up the same. There's a difference there. Yes. So you you exhibited guidance control even in the face of no um I just blanked. What's it called? Uh, Regular
0: regulative control. Yes. 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 Yeah. Because I mean, yeah. So you're 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 perfectly right. Because in the in the first sense or in the first scenario, there is actually no impediments to your guidance control. Like that is, if you wanted to turn left, you actually could. But determinism just ruined that possibility for you. So it's not about that. Um, but it's about yeah, you you being able to translate. Um, your intentions desires thoughts reasons motivations right into action um, so
1: like, can, we, can we go to the I, I know this isn't exactly his point um yeah yeah because he distinguishes his point from john locke's point but i i just feel like john yeah Locke,
0: yeah what page is this um, on
1: this is uh 121 okay so, like this will be uh second paragraph or i guess third paragraph so the second car case should elicit the intuition that we do not need regulative control, genuine access to alternative possibilities in order to have the kind of control involved in moral responsibility. The second case a uh, car case is rather like John Locke's famous example of a man who is in a room which unknown to him is locked. The man thinks about whether to leave the room but decides to stay in the room for his own reasons. Mm. The fact that the door is locked plays no role in the man's practical reasoning. Locke states that the man remains in the room voluntarily, although he could not have left the room. Similarly, it seems that I exhibit guidance control of of the car, although I could not have caused the car to go to the left. So your intention was for the car to turn right, the car couldn't have turned left. It could only have turned right, but you intended the car to turn right. And, yes. you know, action followed intention in this case, although you ha- yes. could yes. not have turned left. That so- was,
0: that's a really good quotation to read, actually. And maybe and maybe the way to really kind of crispen up the, the distinction there is to compare. I mean, he doesn't do this in the paper, but he could compare both scenarios to a case in which, you you know, if you think about a roller coaster, that, that is a scenario in which you have neither regulative nor guidance control. And I think that might illustrate the, the big difference between the two. So in all three cases, you have no regulative control because determinism is true. You couldn't have done otherwise. But in the third case of the roller coaster, you have no guidance control either. Whereas you do have guidance control in the first two.
1: We're, 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 what about this one? Like I, I just thought of this one. What if like I, I held a gun to your head and mm. um, it, <clears throat> whether I pull the trigger or not, the bullet to <laughs> fire into your head, right? Exactly,
0: exactly. But, but I
1: pull the trigger. You
0: intended to kill me. Intending <laughs> to
1: kill you. There's a difference. Exactly. You know I mean? In exactly. the sense that like I exhibited guidance control when I pulled <clears throat> the trigger to kill you, even though the bullet was going to fire either way. I think that one also helps illustrate a little bit. Very much so.
0: So yes, yes, very dis- much so.
1: Given, does that distinction make sense? You're, you're, you're smiling over. Yeah,
2: there. I, I thought it was a, a good hyperbolic example. But um, did the example the importance make sense of though? intent?
1: Yes, yes. To an yeah, extent. no.
2: I uh, I, no. I think it was good. Um, I, I honestly thought the uh, kind of car example, um, didn't, uh, illustrate it to me at first. Uh, whenever I was reading the paper, so I think that's a good alternative to bring up like it becomes l- even
1: more stark with the gun example it does <laughs> so. yeah
2: i'm um, just briefly because i like read i like made a note here um this is in 121 as well um kind of like where he kind of clarifies he says i have i control the car and i have control of the car but i do not have control over the car's movements that's kind of like where he was kind of like laying out the difference Ooh. And i didn't think that was as crisp as um like the the gun example
1: and, and I, and I, I don't want us to get bogged down here a little bit, but um I've just been like, I haven't given this serious thought to be entirely honest, but I've just been thinking about it just kind of slightly in passing when I've reread this section a few times, but I'm just wondering like whether like this distinction collapses.
0: Yeah. I was yeah, thinking you know about that mean? too. You know, you know yes. what I mean? It's, yes. it's just
1: like, cause I, I haven't given it enough thought, but like, is there, is there actually a difference between the two?
0: I had that note too because because there's there's this almost kind of intuition that that I have and I don't know where it fits into this schema where there's this sense of almost whatever happens just, that is what happens right it's there's there's almost sort of this so I I don't know what I think about this but I, but. I'm almost wondering if a, a sense mm. of could have done otherwise does begin to trickle into the guidance control. And and I don't know. And I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe let's keep that. Let's keep that in mind because I, because let, so let's get, let's get reasons responsiveness on the table sure, and, and mechanism sure. control. Sure.
1: I just wanted to raise that a little bit because, I, I, yeah, because, good, I, because yeah. the, the question you just asked, I had to kind of conceptualize it, but yes, exactly. I, I wonder whether, mm-hmm. Regulative control does creep into guidance control in this case. Like, I
0: don't know. Yeah, yeah. Because let's...
1: like, when, because when you get it into like, you know, actions, almost like the gun example or the car example, it's like, okay, yeah, we can distinguish between those two pretty easily. But when it's mm-hmm. like, when it comes to intention itself, okay, now could you have intended otherwise?
0: I can see Paraboom raising that some sort of a variant of that, right? He, he, sure. He's going to say, look, I would imagine Paraboom might respond something like, look, you've basically taken my four case argument. We can fill it out to be a thousand case argument. And then you've drawn the line arbitrarily somewhere. And, sure. and arbitrarily there is doing a lot of, you know, it's, it's not arbitrary in one sense because it conserves a lot of like super reasonable intuitions. Right. And, and it makes kind of coherent sense of the world, but I wonder if a Paraboom style argument would be, you've just chosen to kind of draw a line here. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Yeah. 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 I yeah. mean,
1: that, that's kind of, you know, some of my thinking on it, but I'm, I haven't like fully fleshed that out, you know? So.
0: No, no. I, and I, I I think that we'll probably have to do some more reasons responsiveness papers just, Excuse me. Just about you know, just just getting into the types of reasons responsiveness because I want to see how certain issues like that are addressed in the literature. Um, So okay, Mm -hmm. so so the guidance control for Fisher is going to get spelled out in terms of reasons responsiveness and mechanism ownership. So um, I'm gonna. So okay, here's a quote. so he, he, he's basically at this point, he, he's arguing that guidance control is what matters for moral responsibility and that this is related more to what to what kind of type of person you are, we might say, via your reasons responsiveness. Um, so at the bottom of page 124, he says, quote, My account presupposes that the agent can recognize reasons and, in particular, recognize certain reasons as moral reasons. The account distinguishes between reasons recognition, the ability to recognize the reasons that exist, and reasons reactivity, choice in accordance with reasons that are recognized as good and sufficient, and it makes different demands on reasons recognition and reasons reactivity. The sort of reasons responsiveness linked to moral responsibility on my view, is moderate reasons responsiveness. And so <clears throat> he distinguishes between strong, weak, and moderate reasons responsiveness. And we, he and I spoke about this um, in the episode as well. So, so basically, strong reasons responsiveness is too stringent a requirement, he says, because it posits a one-to-one match between there being a reason to do something and an agent acting for that reason. So in other words, um, it, it actually is very similar to, I don't, we we've never talked about this, but it's very similar to Bernard Williams has this critique of consequentialism where he says that um, consequentialism is alienating from your moral personhood because it demands certain things of you and it, those, those things have nothing to do with sort of who you are as a person, but who you are as a person has to be the person to do those moral things, right? So it kind of, we'll, we'll do an episode on that critique at some point for sure. But um, <clears throat> Williams's point there is that sort of the <clears throat> stringentness, the requirements of consequentialism destroy the very person, the very personhood of someone who might try to be a consequentialist, and I take it that there's a similar critique going on with strong reasons responsiveness. Right? It's sort of saying that if a if the sufficient reasons exist, then to be a strong reasons responsive agent, you always follow those reasons. And that's just yeah, too it, stringent. I, yeah,
1: yeah. It's it's like um, just to emphasize some of those words there. It's like you know, uh, if the agent, uh, let's see. No, that's the mechanism. If So like if the reasoning processing pretty much were to mm-hmm. operate and there were sufficient reason to do otherwise, the agent would recognize mm. sufficient reason to do otherwise and thus choose <laughs> to do otherwise and do otherwise. You always
0: must. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. it's like,
1: it's like that, that's, that's, that can't be true. Like,
0: You're a mere output at that point. Yeah.
1: Yes. So it's like I mean I mean you can you can recognize sufficient reason to do otherwise but then choose not to do otherwise, you know, we can all think of examples in our lives where of course. That, that's been the case. So yes, really not a, it doesn't map on <laughs> experience in that sense. Like- it, it would
0: just be me choosing to, you know, bracket the epistemic concerns. Let's say I just know what the most reasonable thing to do is. It's just can, the, the picture of a strong reasons, responsive person is always just doing the most rational thing to do. So it's like, if this podcast isn't the most rational thing, like I just click end, I just get up, I just immediately do like the thing that's most rational to do. Or it's just, that's not a person anymore at that point. Yeah. And weak reasons responsiveness is conversely too loose. It's not strong enough of a requirement because it posits that just just there is, let me use his language exactly. He says, with the same laws as the actual world in which there, oh, sorry, I, I misread that um, as with strong reasons, responsiveness, we hold fixed the operation of the actual kind of mechanism. And then we simply require that there exists some possible scenario or possible world in which there is a sufficient reason to do otherwise. The agent recognizes this reason and the agent does otherwise. So th- this is too weak because it, it he says it posits too loose a connection. Um, so it's just you know, in some variation of this scenario, with some variation of the agent, you know, they recognize a reason to do it, and they act on that reason. So the problem I take it with this this brand of reasons responsiveness is that it always applies. Like there's always going to be some some reason. Yeah, yeah There's going to be some world in which you do that reason, but but it's like so, so, in the in the in the so, I take it that if you're a strong reasons responsive compatibilist, no one's ever responsible because no one's perfect. And in the weak reasons responsive case, everyone's always morally responsible because there's always some reason in some world in which you do it,
1: yeah, it's like, you know, why why did you drown your children? You know, well, you know they 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 were the incarnate devil, you know mm-hmm. I, just like,, well, yeah, yeah, you know, it's like it, it's it's some reason in some world
2: exactly you
1: know to, so, or, or
0: or i mean like well like, you know, obviously we would want to say that's a bad reason but you could even say i saw 0.001 <laughs> to them but,
1: but well yeah. i was even gonna say yeah. like
0: you could even come up with a reason that's like not obviously wrong but it's also not a good reason like there's a 0.001 chance that they destroy the world right it's like it's, sure that there's a chance you know what i mean so it's yeah like, yeah yeah um okay so 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 John Martin Fisher then uh, lays out this moderate reasons responsiveness, um, which again, Adam and I, we discussed right before the, uh, the, the Fisher episode or the interview that I did with him. And so, so this one is interesting because it posits that if an, so an agent recognizes in a range of possible scenarios What can be seen from an appropriate third party perspective as an understandable pattern of sufficient reasons for not doing X. And there is at least one such scenario in which that agent refrains from doing that action for that reason or for such a reason. So, and I can, and I confirmed this because I had a little bit of a hard time conceptualizing this. And Adam, you and I talked about this. So, basically, what this means is that the person in question recognizes, and he, he even talks about this, this is reasons recognition versus reactivity. So this is basically saying that, that a person who is moderately reasons responsive will recognize that there are legitimate reasons for not doing X and for doing X and, and perhaps, you know, for doing variations of X. And this is a person who recognizes reasons to do multiple courses of action. Right now, Let's say that they actually. So they,
1: and not just that. Let me kind of add on mm -hmm. to that. But it's also the pattern of it. The pattern is really important here, Mm -hmm. is where Mm -hmm. there's there's some logic to what they recognize as a reason.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which, which I. Yeah, and so yes, you're totally right. And that's the part where he mentions the rational third party perspective. Now it's not that. There has to actually be a third party present at all times, but it's that, you know, we kind of like this kind of like Rawlsian like, you know, rational agent kind of, you know, hovering above your shoulder in the background, right? What what would be a rational reason you recognize as such, even this is important, even if you don't act in accordance with that reason, that's the difference between reasons, recognition and reasons, reactivity. I take it, right?
1: hundred yeah, you, yes. percent. You have to just recognize this is a sufficient reason. Exactly. It's like, and, and also just like a pattern of sufficient reasons.
0: Yes. It's like, yes. okay.
1: Like, like I, I recognize this is a pattern of sufficient reasons, but you can either act in accordance with them or not in accordance with them. So- can I
0: give the, can, I want to give the example that Fisher provided in our interview. Cause I think it's actually really good. Um, He, he said, you know, because, because so, so yeah. Listeners might be thinking like, well, what counts as like a rational reason, right? That those are kind of, those are legitimate questions to ask, but those are more about kind of spelling out the details of it. Like this is like a grounding claim that he's, he's making. So he laid out an example, you know, so let's say that you've been kind of like a, you know, a a frugal person um, and there's a sporting event that you want to go to. And let's say that you you know you kind of hold that like seventy five dollars is too much. So so a reason to not go would be that it costs seventy five dollars. Well, if you would, it, but but let's say you know if it costs fifty dollars, you would go. Okay, that's fine. But then if it costs twenty dollars, and that would be a reason not to go, that actually doesn't align with anything because the pattern there doesn't fit, right? Yeah. Like presumably, if you're willing to pay fifty dollars to go. Paying $20 to go is not, a re- is, not a, is not a rational reason not to do it. You know yeah. what I mean?
1: Yeah. Or, yeah. or just the other direction, just for clarity. You know, if you're yeah. a frugal person, you're, you're not willing to pay 75 but you're willing to pay
0: $90. It makes no sense. I, yeah, it it, it doesn't no make sense.
1: any sense unless, as in your conversation with him, you know, you um, had kind of elicited an interesting response from him in the sense that it's you're constantly updating mm. how, you're, how you're viewing somebody's reasons so perhaps there is a sufficient reason for why 90 you know falls into a logical rational pattern mm. but 25 doesn't i mean i I, yes. I don't know why on the spot that would be the case but you know
0: oh, i've got one you, you know, could what? even it's it's implausible but like just you know you sure. could even think that, like, if the number were low enough, it would mean that there would be some sort of exploitative labor that you wouldn't want to support, something like that, right?
1: Sure, or the game's not going to be as good,
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually. Yeah, it, yeah.
1: It, I'm not, it's not worth going to a <coughs> game, but once we hit 90, that seems to be they're, a- they're
0: putting on a good show at that point, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Who knows where, where that line is exactly, but sure, sure, there needs to be some consistency to the pattern of. Um, recognition of sufficient reasons. So. And
0: importantly also, because I, because I think it's easy to gloss over this point too, in saying that, yes, you know, um, I'll, I'm willing to pay $75 to go, that person would also recognize, not necessarily react to the reasons why one ought not go if the ticket costs $75, namely that that money could be donated to Oxfam. Right. Like that's a reason not to go. Now you don't have to conform with that reason, but you ought to recognize that reason. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: And um, then a point you had brought up in that conversation, I thought was a good one is that somebody should be able to recognize as a sufficient reason, reasons they've given in the past, uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, at, so if someone were to say, you know, it, if in the past that person had said $75 <clears throat> was too expensive for that ticket, But now they're saying, I I don't mind paying $75, bringing up that reason that it would be (laughs) expensive. If they didn't recognize that as a good reason anymore, that would be strange. It'd be be strange. They they don't have to act upon it, but not recognizing that as a sufficient reason like frugality, when when they've clearly, you know, recognized that reason before, that doesn't show a pattern of reasoning
0: that
1: is, is consistent or logical or rational. And this, and
0: this is extremely germane to real life too, because oftentimes we, we're explicitly motivated in that, you know, doing something like, it, you know, th- this happens all the time. Someone gets a promotion at a job and suddenly, a, you know, a, a night of splurging and indulgence out in the town is actually something that they're willing to do. Right. Sure. So, so if that person was moderately reasons responsive, they would recognize in both situations, the, 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 the pre-promotion in which they do not go out and splurge and the post-promotion in which they do, the range of reasons for doing that or not, but just it's for them the reasons have, or not the, well, their circumstances have changed and so the reasons then change or which reasons are, are valid to them or not have changed, but yeah. they ought to recognize both in both.
1: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Let me throw out one more just for fun. Yeah, and then I
0: want to return to the character point. Yeah,
1: sure. Of course, but it's almost like, you know, if I were just some sort of health guru guru in a sense, (laughs) but then like I fell off that wagon Mm -hmm. and, you know, I started eating poorly. I was like eating like just some large piece of cake and you're like, you know, aren't you don't you value health? If I were to say like, I couldn't, I can't even like <laughs> recognize that as a sufficient reason. Like that would be very strange. I might yes. upon it, you know, I might indulge myself, but if I can't even recognize that as a, like a sufficient reason, mm. that would be st- deeply strange. Okay. So- this
0: is, this is exactly what I wanted to return to because I thought this was, this was, this might've been my favorite part of the conversation there. I think, and I don't disagree. And and actually, this is this was super cool because you know John Fisher said you know I, this is actually something I'm still kind of working out. So we were just talking about it, which was so cool. Um, it seems to me that because I I I actually wonder if his view has a Do you remember we were talking about? There's four main types of of reason or uh, compatibilism. There's uh, reasons responsiveness. There's moral reasons responsiveness. There's second order desires. And there's character based account. And initially we thought, oh, character-based account's kind of like obviously kind of too simplistic. It's kind of dumb, right? We actually brushed it aside um, because it's like, yeah, an action's free if it's within your character. It's like, okay, well, yeah, it's, it's a little too simple. I think that there's a very interesting uh, injection of a character-based account in this moderate reasons responsiveness. Um,
1: I totally agree. I totally it's see the action so cool. yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So,
0: <clears throat> so. So I'm actually wondering if the if there needs to be a, and if I, if I get into UCR, this would be such a cool like, project to work with him on. I think that there needs to be perhaps an injection of another condition into this moderate reasons responsiveness, or maybe it's just, an, you know, however we want to frame it, it's, it's another condition, but there does have to be this broadly kind of character consistent account to it because it's exactly what you just said like if you were a health guru you know and you had valued this and then suddenly you ha- you just don't anymore you're like uh, you're, you're you're like a wanton with respect to you know your health at that point yeah then because <clears throat> yeah it, it's odd because you're because you still could be kind of reasons responsive but you've very strangely eschewed one reason in particular that's not consistent with who you've been in the past
1: yeah, exactly. You, you don't have to, you know, validate every reason or, 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 or every reason is sufficient that someone could provide you, even if we mm-hmm. might see it as reasonable. Right. Mm-hmm. But the idea of that discontinuity that you couldn't now yeah. See,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. at least
1: recognize that as a sufficient reason of a reason that you would have given in the past or valued in the past. Yeah. Like odd to that. Yeah.
0: Okay. I didn't think of this in, in his conversation, but what you just said made me think of it. Th- there's almost, so we might even distinguish between kind of like a, a like a soft and a hard. Um, rationality or reasons here. Right. So, so one, like, like a reason let's, let's go to, let, well, let's stay on the health example. Right. So I would want to argue that a strong reason that everyone should recognize, not necessarily react about would be that um, eating well, you know, increases your health, right? Now, you know, pe- people are, you know, but, but everyone should, should recognize that reason. Um, but here's a soft, here's kind of a soft objectivity reason. Eating well um, tastes good, right? Now that, that is actually true for me, right? you Like you kind of get you can kind of get like addicted to eating well. Right. But it's totally plausible that some, that another person just, that just isn't true of them. So they do eat well and that's like a value for them for their health, but they just hate it the entire time. Right. And it's just, that's just differences in constitution. Right. Um. So there, it seems to me like it, it, it might even break down further where to be, moderately so so moderate reasons responsiveness might require that you adhere to all objective or strong reasons, but then there are these other kind of soft or non-objective reasons um that can come and go. And I wonder if I don't know. I'm just thinking about that with respect to the character based account.
1: I, I definitely get where you're coming from there, where there's like a certain subjectivity where it's not you're not it's not incumbent on you to recognize that as a good reason, like certain, mm-hmm. certain reasons. Other reasons are almost like yeah. hard facts that you, you should as, you know,
0: like moral facts or empirical facts or just yeah, like rational,
1: yeah. you know, um, a rational person should recognize them at the very least, but then there are other yeah. where it's, you know, it's more subjective.
0: Cause you could just have differences in value that don't, that I, that I think fall into that much more soft reasons. Yeah. So, so, but, but it would still be extremely strange, and you may not fit the, the 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 conditions if you don't adhere to your own historical sense at least given a certain time frame right like i I, I, obviously- I,
1: I was just thinking about that
0: yeah, yeah yeah
1: because because I think it's like <clears throat> you know we we can think to some like maybe you know um perspectives or ideologies we used to hold
0: exactly and
1: and, and we had reasons um. You know that we recognized as sufficient reasons, but yes. today we wouldn't recognize as sufficient reasons. Yes. So, so that discontinuity of that sense, that that actually seems like a very rational discontinuity. Where even if someone were to present to me sufficient reasons that I used to consider sufficient, I I wouldn't consider them sufficient. I wouldn't even yes. recognize them as sufficient reasons given my current state of mind.
0: Here's an example, maybe. Okay, so let's say you're a conservative person politically right <clears throat> and because of that you want a closed border right you just want that's a reason that you kind of you know you respond to now you learn empirical facts that change your mind about that let's say the empirical fact is that of all people admitted as immigrants the you know rate of crime or something that they commit is lower than than people born in the united states right so you were thinking like you know, you know i don't want people like causing crime coming in or whatever right you learn that that's not true now that reason is no longer valid for you, and that that discontinuity seems to be one that is acceptable, but it's conserved because of how you, so, like the way you view those reasons have changed. It's not that you've dropped a value or something, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, and it almost seems like um, in the case you gave there, you know, other reasons mm-hmm. have you know <laughs> become not more sufficient, but just more rational and just you, you give them greater weights.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's still a pattern that's consistent. Like that seems to be the key. It's like you can identify a framework uh, within which you can kind of explain like the changes.
1: That's a good point given. Yeah. Like the, like the pattern aspect makes sense there where it's like, yeah. you're actually still, it, there's like a certain aspect to like the defeasibility aspect there where your mind did change upon this, you know, using this framework as Giffen just mentioned there. Mm,
2: Yeah. You
1: you had a framework in which ideas and reasons were defeasible. And one fact that came in, you know, um, ultimately, made you reject a reason you used to find sufficient
2: yeah I think if you imagine kind of like that kind of pattern like you know a large superstructure kind of way you can kind of account for those kind of changes um, that we were thinking about um, you, it would have to be pretty drastic like really like almost a vampire problem like transformative for it to be just completely unlike recognizable to like your past state like think about like mm. 15 years ago whenever you' you know Back in like middle school or something, right? Like it was yeah, like yeah. totally just. I mean, you like what kind of subhuman kind of framework is this that I'm looking at? You know. <laughs> yeah, you just alienated from who you
0: were at that point. Yeah, but it's like not as if you woke up and were just alienated. Like that would be weird. Like yeah, you go to bed right. a conservative, you wake up a progressive. <laughs> like that wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. But over, yeah, like, it, I mean, it's going to be like very difficult in any of these to, to specify sort of, you know, what's the necessary rate of change or something, right? But it's, I think, I think what matters is that there clearly is a difference in those. And I don't know that defining sort of where along the different, you know, or the, where along the temporal spectrum the change happens matters
2: necessarily as much. Yeah. Right? Some of those would be pretty tough to kind of pinpoint. Um yeah
1: would would like the introduction of like the rational third party you know clarify any of that in the sense that like you know um if you know a rational third party viewed some sort of character discontinuity um mm.
0: You know what I mean? Like, I don't for know. like a, for like a bad. Okay, so so you're you're even asking about the reasons for the character change or something like that.
1: Exactly. Um, yeah. 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 Like, if that were viewed like by a rational observer, as uh, oh, okay, okay. As, but as rational itself, even though the third party observer could disagree with the reasoning that got you there, but that it was mm. a rational process at play to get you there. Then,
0: you know, like let me, let me if- venture a guess or <laughs> a, an example. Then, okay, here's what we might say is a good or a uh, not good, sorry, a rational uh, change of character. You, in a very sh- oh, just like, just like, like a traumatic experience or something, right? So, you, so you barely escape death, and that alters the way that you view how you're spending your time, and that causes you to radically reevaluate your career or some major or or, you know you get divorced or something like I'm actually not happy with this person, right? Something like that's a huge change in character. But it was due to a sort of you know zeroing in on what you actually value. That seems to be what a third, you know, that seems to be a rational change of heart. Here's one that doesn't. You know, you, you you taste like this newfangled dessert for the first time or something, and it just like encapsulates your mind. You're just engrossed with this new dessert. You just you shape your life around getting more of this dessert. You know what I mean? It's just like that seems to be a bad reason to transform your character.
1: Yeah, and and you know, a, a, a rational third party would view that as exactly there. There are no there aren't the mechanism in play here that is arriving. Uh, that is evaluating reasons and <clears throat> arriving at the idea of directing one's life around getting more of that dessert, mm. that is a an irrational discontinuity from the character before. So yeah. based on the reasons used to make that character change or the reasons that
2: influence that character change. Yeah. Hmm. I'm not sure how I feel about this example.
0: Okay, repeat the example then.
2: Or so. So which which example? I mean, which what are you talking about? Like the uh, the um difference between like using. I guess this would be using like the third party to remedy, like whether or not the character change would be. uh, What's the rational? rational i think yeah okay um yeah i'm just not sure because in this example that you gave like clearly we would you know kind of scoff at the uh person who you know basically changes his life around Mm -hmm. whatever the dessert is um but it it might be i don't know i'm i guess i'm trying to like rationalize whether or not like I can imagine some reasons where it could be um, like consistent character wise, yeah, but then it wouldn't be a change of character we We were talking about in cases where your character is radically changed well, I guess what I'm trying to think of is it's almost like it's is it consistent with your character for you to react that way to such a change? Do you know what I'm saying i'm trying i like I'm stepping back a little bit um and i'm I'm trying to think about you know, is it consistent with your character that like you encounter this like life um, threatening kind of encounter and then you come away radically changing your life. Does that framework make sense? I don't know. Yeah. So, so,
1: but, but if like a third party um, were to like a, you know, if a third party were to observe that, yeah, I I don't think they would, you know, say, say, given your example there, they assess that actually the, way that this mechanism has been operating, Mm -hmm. it seems that there is no true discontinuity between who they were and who they are today based on the reasons involved in this change of behavior, because those reasons at play were still operating before this event. Is that what you're saying there? Because um, you're saying that it it actually wouldn't imagine a person in which you could actually imagine that. You know, like they, they construct their life's project around getting this dessert. Yeah. You know, but in that sense, the reasons involved wouldn't be a radical discontinuity then. The reasons involved in their change of behavior.
0: Yeah, the whole point is that so what we were talking about is like in cases where your, your character is altered. Right, I think the problem with your question is you were almost introducing like some sort of a metacognitive character. It's like the character about which they either sign off or not on changing their character. But I don't really know what that is. That seems like a like a little bit of like a dualist intuition or something.
2: Okay, yeah. I mean, we can. I was given. Given
1: kind of did, did did my response make any sense there? Kind um, of. Kind of.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay.
0: I had. I was going to. There was some point that I was thinking of before we went off on the digression about. I can't. It's honestly. It's lost to me. I don't have. I don't have a. I don't have mechanism ownership <laughs> over over that over that part. <laughs> ah, shoot. Honestly, just cut that out. I guess. I can't. It's honestly. I I fully blanked on it. Shoot. Um. Yeah. I don't know. It seems. It seems like there's clearly, yeah. There, there's some way in which character, like a character-based account, is is factoring into a condition here. Um, and I wonder. I yeah. I just yeah. I wonder about that.
1: Oh, I, I respect- agree. I don't. I don't. <clears throat> I don't think we solved it. But I. I, I no. I. Oh, no. I, yeah. I agree. It's there. That's definitely part of this. Here.
0: There's. There's some character kind of condition that is lurking and i don't mean lurking pejoratively i think it's like a, a very like happy addition to to this we would have to read i would have to kind of dive into some character-based accounts you know literature and see exactly kind of how to t- how to integrate that but it does seem intuitively congruent with the rest of this
1: yeah Yeah. it would be super strange if like i mean <clears throat> there are many people we would call moderately reasons responsive, but perhaps there are people that wouldn't recognize as a sufficient reason, just the value of learning. Mm. Like, like, like if you were like, you know, uh, you know, why, why read this book? Like, you know, this book on, I don't know any subject you want, maybe this case, how about philosophy, for example, Mm. like in your case, philosophy, you know, and I were to say, you know, one reason to read the book is that, you know, it's just, you know, for your further edification in the field, you'd be like, okay, I, 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 I
0: recognize that I, that's a reason. I, yeah. I
1: recognize, but then if I were to come to you one day, say tomorrow and say that exact same spiel, and you don't even recognize that.
0: Since it doesn't it, even register for me. Yeah. It,
1: it, then there is a major discontinuity <clears throat> in the sense that, and once again, there are yeah. people. For whom they don't recognize that as I guess as, like, as a sufficient reason. They don't recognize it. but they're still, we would still call them moderately reasons responsive because they still recognize sufficient reasons to do one thing or the other, but they don't recognize that reason.
0: Yeah. In so far, so so this is so if if we're if we want to say that that given reason falls into the soft objectivity bin as opposed to the hard objectivity. I, I would bin. I would say so. Yes, and just I just wanted to clarify for listeners that entire distinction that digression is not Fisher's view. That was just our kind of like thinking about it. So I don't want to you know kind of cast that onto him if he thinks something different. Because I okay, so I think that we were just at the point where he was about to introduce the aspect of mechanism ownership. Should we introduce that? This is Mm -hmm. is very important to his view also. So very bottom of 125 going into 126, he says, on moderate reasons responsive uh, views, agents can be morally responsible for weak-willed and morally wrong actions, but certain clearly insane individuals, individuals who do not exhibit the requisite capacity to recognize patterns of reasons, are not deemed morally responsible which i i find extremely intuitive and and plausible um he says but one could exhibit the right sort of reasons responsiveness as a result say of clandestine unconsented to electronic stimulation of the brain or hypnosis brainwashing and so forth so moderate reasons responsiveness of the actual sequence mechanism is necessary but not sufficient for the control linked to moral responsibility. I contend that there are two elements in guidance control, reasons responsiveness of the right sort, namely moderate kind, and mechanism ownership. That is the mechanism that issues the behavior must in an appropriate sense be the agent's own mechanism, which is, uh, you know, we talked about this in the episode, but this is extremely, you know, interesting as well. And he he said that he was, you know, in thinking about this, he thought of, A Frankfurt-style example, wherein you're implanted with a device in your brain that controls all of your actions, and it is moderately reasons-responsive, but it's not your mechanism. You don't own the mechanism in any sense, so you wouldn't be reasons-responsive. So he realized he needed to add the second condition that you own the mechanism that is controlling the behavior. So, I mean, this seems obviously true to me i don't even understand how someone could argue against that um if you don't own the mechanism by which your reasons are being cashed out um it it does seem and this is how he and yeah i mean this is how he really kind of zeros in on the guidance control right because he says that there are these two parts to it um I see that as just like intuitive, obvious, and, and coherent. Right. I can't, I, like, what would an objection to that even look like to be honest? Well, actually no one in the literature.
1: I mean, I mean, maybe in the sense that one could argue, maybe there's not much of a difference. Mm. It, so, but, I, between, but Actually so. that
0: is what, so, so the one, the one rejection of that I do know of in the literature is by Christine Korsgaard. So remember, we we this never aired, but we were talking about in her book, Creating the Kingdom of Ends, chapter six of that book called Morality as Freedom, she introduces this thought experiment. It's her own version of a Frankfurt case, <clears throat> and there's this device implanted in your brain that controls all of your actions. So it's not like the kind of narrow driving case or the, or the voting case that Fisher talks about or the, you know, or the Frankfurt style cases. This device controls all of your actions. And Courseguard never specifies whether it's reasons responsive or not, but let's even just grant that it is for the sake of, of this objection. Um, she claims that you would still act under the guise of responsibility because you would experience yourself as agentic. Even if you had this device implanted in your brain. Now, it seems to me that if the device was working as intended, her claim is true there. But this demonstrates to me the obvious um, requirement for mechanism ownership. Because like, if Adam, in your sleep tonight, I implant this device and I'm controlling you and I do something that is outside of your character, something that you would not recognize as a legitimate reason, you know, just like committing an unjustified murder of a homeless person or something, right? Like that's not in your character to do. And currently you wouldn't recognize a valid reason to do it. Right. It's not going to be for some greater good. It's not going to be to save someone's life. It's not even going to be to put him out of his misery. Right. Like none of these reasons would be there and you still do it. I I think that like the obvious normative information there is whether the device was implanted in your head and and determined that action or not like the mechanism ownership point right
1: am i reasons responsive in that scenario
0: though if the mechanism is reasons responsive then sure
1: no but it's but just I mean, like but oh. in, but in that scenario where i i do i do i still recognize mm-hmm. you know?
0: so yeah you recognize all the reasons not to do it but you still do it
1: okay so weak will.
0: <laughs> well, not even no, not even weak willed. Um, it would just be that like the device, weak willed implies that you like really, really want to do it, but like, you, like you know, the you just kind of can't like you know you can't get yourself not to succumb to it. This is just like you do think it's the right, but but my point is that.
1: So I'm doing doing it just because you're having me do it.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Because that demonstrates to me the obvious importance of the mechanism ownership. If we want to hold you morally responsible.
1: I don't, I don't want to quibble too much on that, but I still think there's like an inconsistency with like your example here where I, the idea for like the chip being implanted in my brain is that needs to be indistinguishable um, from like a subjectively for you. For, for me, yeah. so, so the idea is either that I, I can't really imagine a situation where it's subjectively not different, but I don't really want to kill this homeless guy. I well, have,
0: you wouldn't, but you would, you would feel as though you do, but I'm saying absolutely no, no, advice no, you wouldn't.
1: No, but then if I really feel like I want to,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then, but I recognize reasons not to, that would make me weak-willed.
0: No, I don't think so Not, I not necessarily want,
1: I, I, I really want to kill the homeless guy Right? Again.
0: No may, Okay, Why? maybe I explained it wrong um, It's not, I don't think it's a case of weak-willed action Because weak-willed action it, Like Weak-willed action implies that You actually want to do other than you did
1: Yes So, so like I mean like Um
0: I was saying you recognize but
1: but, but but not necessarily though, given like his earlier framing of reasons responsiveness, it just comes down to the sufficiency of the reasons as well. I mean, like you're you're referring more to like the like Frankfurt's weak willed case there, where in terms of like first order desires, second order desires, like in a Frankfurt case, it would come down to I, you know, um w- I didn't want to want to kill, you know, the homeless person, Mm -hmm. but I did. Um, But in this case, I'm viewing weak willed more in the sense of the reasons responsive, as he kind of laid out earlier, where it's, I don't have sufficient reasons to kill the homeless person. Like you, I, I haven't been presented with sufficient reasons that I recognize and then there are sufficient reasons that I recognize mm-hmm. not to kill the homeless person, yet I still kill the homeless person.
0: Yeah, that. So that's not exactly what I was trying to. That would that the that would be sort of the case of you're almost kind of like helplessly watching yourself do it, and you're like not in control of your body. I was saying
1: that's kind I, of how you described it. Of like then like,
0: I didn't mean to. Okay yeah.
1: then then what do you what can you lay it out again then?
0: All I was saying it was it honestly it wasn't like the main point of what I was trying to get at, but all I was saying is that, you know, you're, you're Adam right now, the type of person who wouldn't kill a homeless person. It's because you both don't want to, and you don't see any good reasons to do it. Right. And it's not in your character. Right. Um, if a device were implanted in your brain, that changed the way your brain worked such that you did see a good reason to do it. Um, and that subsequently motivated you to want to do it right like there's just no in frankfurt's terms there's a mesh between the the um and you don't really because you both falsely see a good reason to do it because of the device and you want to do it 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 seems in that moment that it's in your character to do it right it's your new character but i was saying that if we were to remove the device you know, and you're, and you're back to normal after, you'd be horrified by what you did. Sure, And that, sure. to me, demonstrates the, the, like the, the crucialness of the mechanism ownership as, yes. as Fisher, yes.
1: I, I, I do quibble, though, with um, the paragraph after this, though, of how Fisher and Revisa um, argue for a subjective approach to mechanism ownership.
0: Mm. Do you want to read that I, paragraph, then?
1: Yeah, So I have argued for a subjective approach to mechanism ownership. On this approach, a mechanism becomes one's own in virtue of one's having certain beliefs about one's agency and its effects in the world. That is, in virtue of seeing oneself in a certain way, of course, it's not simply a matter of saying things. One actually has to have the relevant constellation of beliefs. On this view, an individual becomes morally responsible in part, at least by taking responsibility. He Mm. makes his mechanism his own by taking responsibility for acting Mm. from that kind of mechanism. In a sense, then, one acquires control by taking control. When I act on my own, suitably, reasons, responsive mechanism, I do it my way.
0: I I get what you mean by that. Yeah. So uh, the reductio to that is if you, the reductio to that is if you just you know kind of embraced the device then it would be your own and i i disagree, i agree with you in your disagreement of that then
1: yeah exactly because 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 the device could implant uh, that very that, yeah a, a sense of ownership <laughs> yes like so in that sense like the subjective um what was his exact phrase let me go back to that there uh where it's a subjective approach to mechanism ownership. Yeah. I don't think that cuts it entirely. It can't just be a subjective approach, can it? I mean, given that Mm. advice implanted in your head. That's a good point. I actually
0: hadn't, I I hadn't sort of recognized what was being said in that paragraph.
1: Yeah, I I had an issue with that.
0: Yeah. I mean, no, that actually, if in fact that's what he's saying, I don't think that that makes a lot of sense because of that doesn't even seem to conform with what he previously kind yeah. of argued so, yeah okay so it, so let's let's bracket the proviso that obviously we could be misinterpreting this but if he means that um then i would very much disagree with that
1: yeah because the thing is i had to reread that a few times because like yeah that he said, he said okay you know, it, it can't be a chip in your brain. It can't be you can't be, you know, the Manchurian candidate in this case where you just
0: embrace that. Yeah. It's like exactly.
1: Yeah. And it's like, okay, I I buy all that. I totally agree. Then it's like, but I argue for a subjective approach. I'm like, well, then, then that can still creep in. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I, I have an issue.
0: Yeah. Okay. If he means that, then I totally I, I agree with your point. Um, and it seems like the and it seems like the requirements should be very in alignment with. What a rational third party would deem, and whether it's been in your character, yeah, to 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 embrace that mechanism, right? I agree. Yeah. I so agree. if I, I mean, we can we have to, we can make it less science fictiony. Like, if you get a if you have a brain tumor, a rational third party, anything that is resultant from the brain tumor, a, a rational third party should say that that's not a a good mechanism to own, and you know you. Before the brain tumor, presumably would have also said that. So if you with the brain tumor because of the brain tumor, then own the brain tumor. That doesn't seem like a good reason to me.
1: Yeah, exactly. I agree.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. I'd like to ask him about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> so, okay. I'm very glad. I'm very glad that you made, made a circle back around to that. I would like to follow up with him about that. Yeah. Um, what was I what was I moving forward actually to um, let's should we I think that we've drilled down on reasons responsiveness a good bit should we I guess we can kind of do, do you want to do kind of the beginning to close the podcast with talking about the differences between you know, his critiques of Frankfurt because we've because I like Frankfurt's view and it's it's like it's you know it's obviously interesting or Okay, so let's, let's get to the, let's get to the differences between he and Frankfurt, because we've covered Frankfurt's um, views, not extensively, obviously, but we did both of his most famous papers in the series previously. So I take it that where they disagree, it's not going to be where, where Fisher disagrees with Frankfurt is not going to be found in his 1969 alternate possibilities and moral responsibility. The disagreements are all found, I think, in the 1971 uh, freedom of the will and the concept of a person where he introduces his second order mesh uh, compatibilism. So, okay, first of all, we're assuming we can't really go over Frankfurt's view. So if people haven't listened to that episode, that's probably something that is required for the rest of this episode. Um, But, okay, the... the, um, adam i was very interested to hear because i know you as am i are a fan of frankfurt but perhaps you might be a bit of even more of a frankfurt fan boy than i am <laughs> you you let you like I frankfurt
1: i i don't know as much after reading some of these these <laughs> I, I here's the thing about these before we go through them yeah but some of them were like a gut punch <laughs>
0: <laughs> to, to a frankfurt
1: to, boy yeah yeah some of them were like a some yes. of them I, I hand waved away because I'm like didn't get Frankfurt. Like <laughs> we'll get into them a little bit. Some yes. of these, like the first one, we're going to cover weakness. It's, a, it's it's a gut punch. It's a gut punch. It's a gut punch, and it's, it's like a gut uh, punch. I think okay. the um. Well, I I don't know if I want to give the game away, but I'll just mention the two biggest gut punches here. The uh, weakness of the will. It's a huge one. And then um, what was the other one? It was the was it the. It was a uh, responsibility for wantness.
0: Oh, in- oh, interesting. Okay, I thought that that was one of the weaker critiques. Okay, let's oh, get, oh, let's
1: get oh, to that Oh, then. oh, and identification and ownership. <laughs> uh, that that one, that okay. one was that one. That one hit hard.
0: Okay, so. all right. Let's 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 be promiscuous in how we bounce around here. Then, so okay, <clears throat> we're assuming that if you're still listening, you understand Frankfurt's view as we laid out in the previous episode. Okay, so. Let's go to weakness of the will, because I thought that this was the first one for a reason, like th- this just was the like just the uppercut to the gut of, of the Frankfurt view. OK, <clears throat> let me read. Let me read. I'm going to read the last sentence in the first paragraph and then a majority of the second paragraph but, but skipping a few. So he's going to say, <clears throat> OK, first Frankfurt's approach, but not mine, faces a terrible problem with respect to the lamentably widespread and real phenomenon of weakness of the will. Uh, so let's, so he says, okay, you know, we're all familiar with Frankfurt's unwilling addict, but now imagine an individual who is not an, an, an addict to the drug defined as involving an irresistible desire. Rather, the individual simply has a first order desire to take the drug, a first order desire he correctly takes to be resistible. We can even suppose that although the desire presents itself with a significant intensity, it is not anywhere close to being or being experienced by the individual as so intense as to be genuinely irresistible, the individual simply would like to experience the pleasure and fun of the drug. But we can suppose that on balance, he judges that he should not take the drug. Perhaps he has to drive some distance later and believes that it would be safer if he refrained from taking the drug. Nevertheless, we can imagine what is not uncommon that in a moment of weakness, the individual goes ahead and takes the drug anyway, even though he formed a second order desire not to act on his first order desire to take the drug. Now, he continues in the next paragraph. Further, we can imagine that not only does the individual form a second order desire to act on his first order desire to refrain from taking the drug. He does not form a second order desire to act on his desire to take the drug. But like so many of us, in at least some contexts looking at the dessert menu, considering the second martini, thinking about writing the article promised to the editor, the individual is weak and goes ahead and takes the drug. So this is, I mean, it's wonderful because, so I'll give the punchline. He says, you know, and yet Frankfurt's account implies that the agent being an unwilling drug user is not morally responsible for taking the drug. So his entire point here is that, wow, we're supposed to have this intuition that as per Frankfurt, the unwilling addict isn't morally responsible, but then he actually indicates that, okay, if you buy that, there's actually no difference that Frankfurt can account for between an unwilling addict and just normal widespread pedestrian weakness of the will. Because if you can't resist your desire, if you do succumb to it, you succumbed to it. Even if you should, excuse me, even if it was a a desire that we and the agent would think should be resistible. Right? So the problem that he levies against Frankfurt is that there there's not really a strong distinction between an unwilling addict and anyone who doesn't conform to their second order desires. You know what I mean? So, so, but, but people who have just normal akrasia or like just the Greek word for weakness of the will, those are people that we do and want to hold morally responsible. Like, no, no, like you were actually just weak there, but on Frankfurt's account, it's not possible to do that because of the misalignment between the first and order, first and second order desires. I laid that out correctly, Adam, right?
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> what does the Frankfurt it, fanboy have to say? Well, I mean, I, I tried, I tried thinking about this a little bit in the sense that, you know, okay, well obviously both <laughs> under the Frankfurt model, both acts would be compulsive behavior. Yes. It would be so, um, But there is clearly a difference. Yes, that that the Frankfurt model doesn't capture. So
0: I buy both um, of those. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I mean, it's it it seems that while they're both compulsive (laughs) behavior, one. (laughs) It, it it strikes intuitively that one should be held morally responsible for weak to
0: actions, yes. and that it
1: really does reflect one's character.
0: Mm. You can have a weak character or not. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. Think
0: about. I mean, this is what discipline is, essentially, right? It's the ability to ignore first-order desires. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I can imagine. A harder, kind of hard, more hardcore Frankfurt fan biting the bullet there. What do you think of that response? And just saying, okay, then, well, you know, if you've stipulated that the person can't resist the desire, even if they should be able to, well, then, yeah, they're not morally responsible.
1: Yeah, but then you'd have to respond and say that that behavior still reflects who they are, though. So if the idea is that um you know you're you're free in the Frankfurt model um if behavior aligns with second order volitions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um but and you're morally responsible when behavior or when first order desires align with second order volitions and it become and that and that behavior becomes mm-hmm. actionable. Yeah, it, and, and that's because it's a reflection of kind of higher order desires. The
0: type of person you want to be. It's almost reflective of what's happening at the third level.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so when you kind of peel back and ask like, okay, what is this framework? Like you just said, it's a reflection of ultimately who are you? Okay, well, that framework doesn't capture this scenario, which actually does reflect who you are. You're, you're a weak willed person.
0: Yes. Yes. So,
1: and it doesn't capture that. So it's like, okay, all right.
0: Could, could Frankfurt push back and say, no, it does. It does capture that. It, it can capture that distinction. Well, no, but I but I get I, I get what Frankfurt's saying about or um, Fisher is saying about how it can't really actually because because you want to preserve that distinction but you can't do it with the tools that Frankfurt laid out at least in his seventy one paper he might have kind of gone on to to do that but because then you're because then he's almost making this sort of there's almost this like weird essentialist claim kind of going on in the background that like some desires are really irresistible and some aren't and that's on the one hand but then. If any time that you don't have, um, any time that you don't have mesh between the first order and the second order of desires, it's not free action. Those seem to be in contest with each other, right?
1: And it almost seems like special pleading points too, to like yeah. some behavior is just like irresistible <laughs> behavior is, you know, I mean, like it seems like you can
0: point to mm. the cakes uh, ir- supposed to be irresistible, but the heroin's not, you know what I mean? It's yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So. And, and, but
0: which is not to deny that there is a difference between ha- cake and heroin. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I could eat a lot of sure. cake and then still resist a- any given piece. And I probably couldn't do that with heroin. Right. Um, but but I take Fisher's remark to be right on. But Frankfurt can't give you that account, you know.
1: And I, I and I think actually this bleeds well into the. Um...
0: Wait can can I ask? Can I actually linger for a second on this? I wanted to yeah, ask yeah. you. Okay, here's uh, I don't I don't have any like developed thoughts about this. But I find the way that Frankfurt lays out a lot of his thesis everything besides that point is extremely intuitive and i and i like it can fisher's reasons responsiveness absorb everything there like if you just translate i guess if you translate desires into reasons um it probably can then right
1: well that's what i was thinking like and like yeah like almost like another view of it but yeah reasons instead of desires Um, Mm -hmm. but because I I I know I think his approach definitely captures weak-willed people. Like um,
0: yeah 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 yeah.
1: But which scenarios are you thinking that Fisher might not capture?
0: I don't know. Let me. Um, there was a there was something that I had highlighted, and I and I'm forgetting what section. Oh. You know, it was in the it was in the it was in the section two point four. So he says, you know, it's is entitled "Why Hierarchy." Um, so what, he actually levies a critique from Watson against um, against Frankfurt. So quoting from Watson, he says, Frankfurt's picture of practical judgment seems to be one seems to be. That of an agent with a given set of first-order desires concerning which he then forms second-order volitions. But this picture seems to be distorted. As I see it, agents frequently formulate values concerning alternatives they had not hitherto desired. Initially, they do not or need not usually ask themselves which of their desires they want to be effective in action. They ask themselves which course of action is most worth pursuing. So, and then, and then on the next page, very top of 133, this is Fisher now. Um, so the problem is not that Frankfurt's picture presupposes that agents have fixed sets of first-order desires, but there is definitely a problem. The model appears to present us as deliberating in the first instance about ourselves, our own mental states, first-order desires, but this does not seem to be an accurate portrayal of practical reasoning, at least in most cases. Typically, we are focused on courses of action and our deliberations are more accurately conceptualized as about, in a direct sense, these courses of action in the world. Okay, it seems to me, so I agree with the frequency point that he's making there. Like, actually, most of the time, we just kind of deliberate about courses of action, not which desires we want to partake in or not. That seems psychologically accurate of me right uh, like a lot of reasoning is just this kind of very practical how to get things done and you know how to go about doing things but i it, but but at the same time psychologically i do deliberate about sort of what desires i want to indulge or not um and so because he says you know typically we're focused on this but but can I just don't know. So how, so how can Fisher's account encapsulate kind of the purest form of what Frankfurt's talking about? So when I really do kind of have, you know, we, we talked about it previously as there's a lot of these first order desires kind of activating at different times. Impulses strike you, right? Could have cake, could, could do whatever. Um, and sometimes you indulge them and sometimes you don't. And those are based on your second order of volitions. That seems to be, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that's true. I know that to be true. Now, how, now does this fit within Fisher's account seamlessly or not? Um, so he would phrase that be, because he, I take it that because this is, Um. I mean, you know, he's saying like a hierarchy of wills doesn't, it's not required. Like it's not necessary to explain all this.
1: He's kind of throwing it out. Like it doesn't. It doesn't really fit into Fisher's view, because he's saying like the hierarchy itself is sort of a. Um, it's of a, a needless artificial construction, yeah, he, in a sense. Yeah,
2: he <sighs> he specifically says like the benefit of his model is that it doesn't require you know the yeah. hassle of the hierarchy. I just thought that th- there... are they
0: Part of the problem for
2: me is like I kind of enjoyed like the framework of like the um, hierarchical approach, like just kind of analyzing, you you know, one's own thoughts. Um, I just don't know if it's strictly like necessary. Well, it seems to me that so, so how, so
0: here's where it might be necessary. If a reasons responsive account cannot Uh, cannot account for when i do in fact deliberate about my own desires because i'm i'm saying that that's psychologically true and then i'm kind of seeing which view can accommodate that because frankfurt's clearly can right but i'm not saying that therefore frankfurt's view is right i'm saying you think is there any case where like the frankfurt can capture it but but um, Fishers I understand. can't, yeah, right? And then the question would be, how did how would Fisher's view need to be modified in order to capture that, right? And I, and that's not something that I can kind of come up up come up with off the top of my head, but it's more of raising that question to kind of think about further. It's a really good question to raise. I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how reasons responsiveness can kind of. I, I guess. I guess. So. So. Because, to be honest, the way that I would conceptualize it almost puts a hierarchical view into the reasons-responsive account. So the way that I might, if I had <laughs> to think about it in a reasons-responsive framework, I might kind of say, you know, in a very Frankfurtian way, um, desires and impulses kind of just, you know, activate at certain times and not, right? We're we're pulled by once in a way that we're not pulled by reasons. Right. Right. So, but then the problem is, is I can't help but conceptualize it as the next level of that is our reasonable is our is our
2: rational deliberation about which of those we want to indulge. Yeah. It's almost like Fisher has embedded in his kind of non-hierarchical model the idea that we use hierarchies in our reasoning. That what we you're getting at? Well,
0: I wasn't saying that Fisher's doing that, but I'm saying might he have to? Right, right.
2: Yeah, yeah. Because uh, because otherwise be consistent.
0: Yeah, I don't know how because I I don't really view because because I I, I don't view hierarchical wills really as an issue because they don't seem to be that conceptually extravagant like i'm not being i'm not making a metaphysical claim that i have some sort of real like tiered i'm just saying intra-psychically it, it doesn't i don't know it doesn't seem gratuitous to me do, do you i mean i know you know simplicity is always a nice thing to have in, the, in you know theories and accounts
2: but it doesn't seem extremely gratuitous to have
0: a higher school.
2: i'm actually having a hard time imagining someone who's Reason responsive, but just doesn't understand. Like, can't use any hierarchy because wouldn't.
0: I mean, just just to just to grant one reason over another. That that is the hierarchy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that is, I mean, you can imagine. You know, maybe it doesn't get to like a well, certain tier. Oh, no, but...
0: w- he would say that that's not a hierarchy of will. That's just valuing some reasons more than uh, than others. I think. Oh, right. I think that that's what mm. Fisher would say. But but I, but I but I but I'm I don't know. I guess I am kind of okay with more than that i am kind of wondering if i don't know maybe maybe i should just raise the wondering and and move on but i don't know does that is my question pulling you at all adam
1: Uh, i i think so i'm i'm just trying to think a little bit of just like i because i do capture different things um I'm, i'm i'm not convinced that frankfurt's model captures everything perfectly obviously oh no yeah based on you know what we just read here but i do think there is um something missing in in fisher's model not in the sense that there is like any example i can point to right now but more so that i i still think there is something to you know desires and behavior aligning with yeah. desires that you want to become actionable that, yes that, you know,
0: everything we talked about in the frankfurt episode has to be absorbed if i'm if i'm to buy this view because i because th- those are just psychologically true those deliberations yes,
1: yes. I, I i i still think so
0: yes um, yes you know,
1: it's I, I, yeah not going to describe perfectly when more responsibility obtains (laughs) we've
0: got to nail this down yeah
1: yeah but but it's but it's still um i think a a valuable lens to view when it obtains Mm. um
0: i think maybe we should just raise that ponderance and then move on because it i
1: mean i mean it it almost seems to like work Asymmetrically, in the sense where it's like, okay, if behavior um, is uh, from the cause of a first order desire and it aligns with a second order volition, you definitely are morally responsible.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You know what I mean? Like in that case, you're definitely morally responsible. Yes. And still, under Fisher's view, too,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and comes when behavior you know, in- deviates desires that don't align the question is are you not morally responsible and the qu- answer yeah is not necessarily you know what i mean like mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you could still be morally responsible
0: you so. know i i thought i was thinking about this too and, and and correct me if i'm wrong but fish actually doesn't mention this but i thought that so so yeah for, remember this was a remark in the frankfurt paper that when there is alignment oh this, this goes to addressing um the it's both with a hierarchical but it but it, the regress problem that he raises because because i thought that i thought that the regress problem was actually quite a nice one that frankfurt preemptively solved right? i
1: totally when, agree i totally i yeah, I, I, just, so, I just i just i just missed this one <laughs>
0: <laughs> because because when uh I, I thought that he gave a nice account of like look you know when when you're when you're first and second and third order desires align decisively that just cuts off the chain you've you've this is the type of person you want to be that entails wanting to do wanting to indulge certain type of desires and you have those desires and then it's just it just terminates the I, i forget the language that frankfurt uses in his paper but he says it you know kind of decisively cuts it off there and we need not you know kind of go go into it further right now that's a good account of a, the positive when they do align. And then, you know, obviously, Fisher's, Fisher's critiques are more centered on when they don't, I think. But but the regress problem doesn't seem to be a damning one, in my opinion.
1: No, I, I didn't think so either. Um, I, I do want to kind of pause on, like, this, the end of paragraph one in the regress problem. Oh, like, okay. Like, you know, uh, what if there is a conflict at the second level Or what if the individual uh, does not care is a wanton at the third level? Yeah. I just want to pause there and just kind of ruminate about that a little bit.
0: So I, I, I thought about this too. I had it highlighted. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now this, this was an interesting point one way or the other. So like, so what, does that mean to be wanton at the third level? That would mean that you, you don't really have any desire to distinguish between second order desires one way mm. or the other. So that, that's what that would mean there.
0: You don't care about, and remember we had, we had come up with the conceptualization as the type of person you want to be, right? Yes. The wanton with respect to the second level wouldn't care what type of person they want to be. Here's a, here's a real example for me, actually. Um, I have multiple clusters of first order desires, things that roughly kind of coincide with each other. Right. There's a lot of ones in philosophy, for example, you know, I, I like ambitious academically pursue these things, actually develop like my own views on these, allow it to enrich my life in that sense. Right. And I endorse those, uh, like I'm happy to have those desires and I'm happy for them to be active. Right. Um, I also have clusters of desires in other areas of my life. Um, let's use like physical fitness or physical health or something. Right. I have desires to eat well, to work out, and I endorse those desires. Right. Um, and I'm happy to have them activated. There are practical scenarios in which both of those things can't happen at the same time. There are times where I have to just postpone, like I can't have the perfect meal because I've got to read this paper and get to my next class or something, right? Like, the, So that's where the, the third order, the type of person I want to be identifies decisively with one set of second order desires and cuts them off, right? So if I didn't care what type of person I wanted to be, then I would just, then I would just, it would just be like, you know, kind of kind of whatever, I guess. It would just be, I would just do whatever I was doing. Like if I was going to the gym already, like I just, you know, keep going to the gym, I guess. And if it was right. um,
1: Yeah. And and I actually don't see a problem with being at at a certain level, you know, and I mean, as you just laid out, you might want to want to go to the gym. You might want to want to read. And, you know, maybe at that level, there'd still be some distinguishing factor on the third level where you Mm -hmm. want one of those second order. You want
0: to be one type of person more. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
1: But, but when once you reach a certain level I kind of was just thinking about it I was kind of conceptualizing you know maybe you do reach a point where two hmm. versions of yourself become indistinguishable you
2: know what I mean yeah. like so, so like I, you're a wanton at like the seventh level or something you mean possibly uh, it, whatever that would mean yeah yeah exa-
1: exactly exactly <laughs> it, and it, 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 does that matter like you're I, basically
0: uh, y- it, to be honest, I think you were almost edging into like a causa sui point. Do, do you know what I mean? It's like you don't yeah. actually create kind of who, who you end up being in some sense, right? Because like you can't you can't own you can't own Frankfurt all the way up. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. There there is a there's a veil of ignorance kind of with respect to the orders at some level.
1: Sure. I mean, I bet a-
0: that doesn't seem to be an issue because that's just that's just it wouldn't even make sense that that this is almost like Galen's point about like it it's incoherent to say like you made yourself. Who's the you at that point then? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah so I, I don't know. I mean, I just kind of like imagined, you know, if I were to draw this out and I would reach a certain point where. I actually really couldn't distinguish between, like, you know, like between two (laughs) different hierarchies. That I'm I'm now on the seventh level, and it's like, do I really feel strongly one way or the other? Like, do I want to want to want, you know, (laughs)
0: exactly exactly
1: be this kind of like path, and you know, or like this hierarchy over another? And it's like, I don't know. These are both I would value. I would distinguish over possibly infinite other hierarchies. Yeah, but. I don't know. I I don't necessarily. I
0: don't. I'm actually writing this. I'm actually writing this out right now. So I want to talk through it for a second with you guys. Okay. So here's two examples of first order desires. Mm. I want to exercise and I want to read. Right. Um, At the second order level, uh, I could I could endorse the you know you want to want to do those things right. So yeah, you same, want to have those desires. That. Exactly. Yeah. yeah you're, you're okay with them being activated. Mm-hmm. Now that cashes out at the third level of the type of person you want to be. So in the first one, it's, you know, kind of attributes about yourself. Something like, you know, I want to be like a fit person, right? Or I want to be an erudite person in the second one. At the fourth level, you could even imagine. Oh, uh, it works better with a different example. Um, Instead of exercise, because that I accidentally chose two things that were both very rational all the way up the line, right? Yeah, (laughs) let let, me let me choose. So instead of exercising, let's say that it was going out and partying, right? So you could want to want that um, because socialize, hang out with friends you haven't seen in a while, it's a good time, right? And um, that type of person at the third order level is a fun person. They're a good hangout, you know, they're entertaining, they probably have a lot of friends. Now at the fourth level, this is this is interesting because then I wonder if the fourth level is the highest you can go because this is the this is almost the meta type of person you want to be. So this is almost like the big five personality traits almost. This is like, do I want to be in the in the partying case, a a um a spontaneous person, right? Um, Do I want to be sort of a like live in the moment person, a carpe diem person, or in the reading case, do I want to be a reserved person, like a very disciplined kind of structured orderly person, right? I don't think you can get past that level. And that's where you kind of, is that where the veil, you know, of ignorance is at?
2: I feel yeah, like you could I, I, go now, higher. I, I've
0: got it already. The, f- the fifth level could be: okay. Do I want to be the type of person who can con- like have that level of control over myself? You know what I mean? Like actually, just embody kind of the extroverted, fun, lo- like loving life, or embody that. But but at that point,
1: yeah. I mean, it it just it just devolves into you
0: very- get closer into the darkness. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's like, you know, do I want to be this kind of person? Do I want to want to be this kind of person? That, yeah. Now, it's an interesting question. Do I want to want to want to be that kind of person? I feel like you reach a certain yeah. level where being wanton is, I, I don't. It's inescapable. Yeah, it is. And I don't see it as a problem. No, because,
0: oh. the, because for, for wantonness to not be a problem at any level, You'd have to be endorsing Kazusui, which then right because, because and then Gaen would like say, <laughs> I think you would, because then well, then Gayla would step in and say that's incoherent
1: yeah yeah, and, and, yeah. I, and I, I, don't, I don't think that's what like the framework's there to capture like the framework's there to capture yeah. like you know, um discernible desires that can be distinguished and made actionable, and it's not meant to be the framework's not there to like you know yeah what's out of the void you know it's, it's like out of the abyss it just <laughs> yeah single-handedly so. yeah
0: yeah no i totally agree um we've been going for like a like a, a good two hours at this point were there any um
1: it has it has to be the last one that's that's the last one that that's that's the biggest takedown of um of frankfurt the the whole heart yeah.
0: yeah 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 okay so Uh, This is section 2.6. Yeah. Okay. Um, If you want, I've got some highlights that might introduce the issue.
1: Yeah, go for it.
0: Okay. This is uh, quoting Fisher. On Frankfurt's early view an individual identifies with a first-order desire and the relevant course of action in virtue of forming a second-order volition to act in accordance with it. The problem comes from a combination of invoking identification as part of the analysis of acting freely and giving a hierarchical account of identification. When an agent identifies with a particular first-order desire, he selects it as representing his real self, or perhaps the real self for the purpose of practical reasoning, or some such thing. The idea is that identification points to the real, basic, or genuine self, at least for the purpose of, or in the domain of, practical reasoning. Um, In our locution, we might say, or the self that that person wants to be, right? Um, Continuing in the next paragraph, the problem is that the hierarchical account does not have the resources to distinguish between an individual's real self or real self for the purposes of practical reasoning and the individual's ego ideal that is what he wants to be or perhaps aspires to be so getting into our fourth or fifth level lamentably there can be a difference between who one is, who one really is, and who one wants even desperately to be. And the hierarchical apparatus in Frankfurt's case, the second order volitions appears to be incapable of distinguishing between the real self and the ego ideal, who one is and who one wants to be. And I, if I'm understanding that point, he's saying, you at a certain point, you can't get out of this because who you are is going to be who you want to be, but then there could be like, but there, there almost seems to be this like super self who's like, oh no,
1: but I really want to be this. But that's just you, then.
2: Right. You. Yeah,
1: it, it, exactly. It's like the idea is like the second order of volition is like pretty much behavior you endorse. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I, I don't endorse this behavior. <laughs> No. So that's, that's not me. I didn't act freely. (laughs) Like in a way, like that is you, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like you did
0: do that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You, you, you did do that. And, you know, and once again, Frankfurt's model, I think is really good at distinguishing between, you know, uh, there is behavior that one does endorse Mm. versus behavior. One doesn't endorse. And that distinction is really important, but the idea that it's not you no, it is you, that is who Mm. you are. But it's not who you want to be, and it's not behavior you endorse, but it is who you are. That that does, form yeah, yeah. A picture of like, uh, you know what?
0: I, uh, this almost seems like he is almost just making the point of you don't have access to that rational third party within yourself, almost. Like that, I t- that could almost be like a phrasing of what he's getting at here, right? It's like at a certain point, you kind of it's just like, it's almost it's almost the same point we were making. Like at some point you just, you are who you are and like you can't, you don't have access to this, like who you want to be because that is just who you are at a certain level.
2: Yeah. Yes.
1: yes. And so, you know, it's like back to the cake example. I don't know if this will be any good, but it's like, okay, I want to eat the cake, you know, um, or <laughs> I don't want to want to eat the cake, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I ate the cake. And that behavior is not in alignment with my second order volition. But at the end of the day, I did eat the cake. Mm. So, so whether, you know, that it could be my real self that I'm pointing to here, or it could just be my ego ideal. It could be that I want to be the kind of person Mm. that passes on the cake. Yeah. That's who I identify with. But in Mm. reality, I ate the cake and that is my real self here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So. And, and distinguishing between those two is, is hard because it's like, okay, maybe my real self is the kind of person who wouldn't eat the cake unless I eat the cake compulsively. But mm-hmm. who's to say, right? Who, yeah. who, you're just hand-waving
0: that that's you. You, yes. you, you yes. say,
1: please believe me. <laughs> that's yes, this. exactly. It's, it's, yes. it's, so who's to say one way or the other, whether it's your real self, uh, you know, forcing yes. this behavior or an I an ego ideal not yes. this behavior. Yes, so I, and, I thought and, that was a big takedown.
0: And it's and it's damning enough at these lower levels. You know, the discordance in the first and second order, but it gets it's it gets kind of harder to harder to resist as you go up, right? Because it's like, oh, I want to be the type of person who has that discipline, right? Okay, but then in the scenarios where you don't like that, but that is who you are. Like you are a weak willed person, you know, something like that. So. As sure. it gets, it seems even more damning the higher up the ladder you go. Even though it is damning at the lower ones too. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I. I take it that. Yeah. 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 I, I wonder how Frankfurt would respond to that because the point is that he's having his kind of real self cake and eating it too, right? And yeah. 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 I. It'd be interesting. I don't know. Did he ever? Um. He doesn't reference. He doesn't reference does he uh if frankfurt responds to this i don't i don't think he does oh i'm curious i'm curious if um
1: he said at one point that just with regard to these critiques frankfurt had later writing that yeah i don't but, know what but, those are and I, yeah. I don't know
0: if that refers to this point in particular or not yeah yeah yeah, yeah i don't know um <laughs> i knew <laughs> i knew um uh, I was like, oh, you know, Adam's gonna just like be just you know, just gutted by these by these sections.
1: Well, here's the thing: it's like I think it was um, really good to see a takedown of Frankfurt's work in the sense that you know it's always I temper fun. that fandom. It's yeah. all well. No, it's always re- it's always fun to read a takedown because oh, yeah. it, like it just you know uh, keeps you honest. Yes, yes. Also, number two would be. I, an interesting thing to take away from this conversation is I will give some serious thought to um, potential moral situations that mm. for would capture.
0: That Fisher, Fisher wouldn't. Yes. Exactly. Because
1: yes, yeah. there's such value in the framing. Still, the framing. I know.
0: I know. And that's that was that's my entire that's my biggest ponderance that I I, I need to dwell on is. I'll, I'll, it was just rephrasing of your question are there things that frankfurt captures that fisher can't and if so how could his view be revised such to include those yeah that 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 is that is the follow-up question for, for this episode yeah, i'm we're de- i want to i want to i know um so i know michael mckenna from the university of arizona falls into a to twist he has semi-compatibilist leanings he's written a reason responsiveness papers and i know that I think he has some slight differences with Dana Nelkin at UC San Diego, who is a reasons-responsive compatibilist, I believe. Um, so i will have to look at some papers by both of them and see if we can get some more, some more stuff on reasons responsiveness. Because I want to, I want to oh. think these through. Yeah. Of
1: course, of course. <laughs>
0: yes, this this was a great. You know, this was a classic episode in. You know. Let's unpack this view. It was a classic unpacking episode. Yes, it was a classic unpacking episode. The only regret
1: is they couldn't go longer because there was more stuff. But we we. I'm in we... a
0: table. I, there, I have questions about determinism that will come up. I think even maybe more clearly in more reasons responsiveness. I, I have them in a separate document, so that'll be a tease for the next episode. Because because I think that there are. Im- very interesting questions about how relevant determinism can be for mechanism ownership. Um, okay, so maybe with that kind of prelude for, for next episode, it may not be reasons-responsive. Well, we'll just have to see about paper lengths and such like that, the practical concerns. Um, but we, we will be diving back into reasons-responsiveness at some point. So with that um, i hope that you know listeners enjoy this long episode and if you haven't yeah read this paper it's very worth it and uh, if you haven't listened to my conversation with John Martin Fisher so until next time thanks for listening